Hello, everybody. Okay, so we're on part two, and we'll just get going. So the first question is from Mike, who says, do you think there's been too much focus on farming or growing in a homesteading sense, especially on YouTube? I'm just not seeing anything from small farmers who grow food for their local community. I started a channel to focus on that, but there doesn't seem to be much interest. Have we given up on small farmers? Um, well, I sure hope not. Uh, I just wonder if maybe YouTube isn't really, um, it seems like on YouTube, a lot of people are more giving skills on homesteading type stuff. And maybe, maybe it's just sort of a bubble that's not indicative of the greater picture. I think a lot of people are dependent on small farms. I'm always encouraging people to get their food from small farms and, um, you know, it's really important, I think, that people build their relationships with small farmers. Not everyone can grow their food, and a very small uh, fraction of people can actually grow all of their own food. So there is interconnected and dependency on each other, and there should be. So I, I don't know, you know, I, I've been to many farming conferences throughout my life, and um there was no talk at all about sort of homesteading and it was um, more about small farming and often it was about um, particular types of small farming. I found it, it it's really rare to find a farm, a small farm that doesn't specialize in sort of one thing. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, you'll there's organic vegetable farms, but they don't grow any meat or dairy or anything like that. And um, sometimes people raise beef, but they don't ha even have a garden. So I see that all the time. So even within the small farming community, and just like with the homesteading community, there is, of course, that dependency. Um, you know, I wonder if just maybe it's, it's the circle or the bubble of YouTube that you're speaking of specifically, because I know too that my friends that are small farmers and uh, are, um, you know, especially after COVID shook some people up, it seems that there's a lot of people that are, are moving towards small farms or building those relationships. I don't know if it stayed that way. I think there was a huge um, demand initially, and maybe that's uh, waned a little bit with with uh, people thinking that things are going back to normal. I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't know, Mike. Um, do you think, do you feel like we've given up on small farmers? I mean, I don't see it. I don't hear it. I think, I think people are starting to realize that we need small farmers, but we also need to have a level of resilience ourselves. And, you know, when push comes to shove, we need to be able to have some skills and some backup for ourselves. And, and I think people are sensing that. So I wonder if that's the shift that you're sensing is this sort of real desire and sort of this, you know, level of, of, um, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to sound doomsday, but just sort of this feeling that, uh, you know, we need to have some sort of uh, ability to care for ourselves um, as things are rapidly shifting globally. So maybe that's just where the zeitgeist is right now, but I don't think that rules out the need for small farmers. Anyway, that's my opinion. 
Okay, Kendra says, uh, I look forward to these Q&As each and every time. Thank you, Kendra. I know it's no small task. No, it's not. I will keep my question brief. We're not interested in doing on-site farm butch, or we are interested, sorry, in doing on-site farm butchering. We've raised beef and lamb for about the last 10 years, but have never done our own butchering. Seems like such a shame. She said that, not me. Uh, while we intend to still use our local USDA processor for our retail meat, we want to get set up to butcher meat for ourselves. What tools and setup would you say are essential for a successful home butchering of the larger ruminant animals? If you'd even be willing to break it into two parts, the very basic essentials to get the job done and the nicer splurges investments that make it easier but aren't necessarily essential. Thank you. Okay, um, so let's see. I'll try to go through this uh, systematically. So we'll start with um, shooting the animal. So you will need a good rifle. Either um, what we use is either a twenty-two Magnum or a two-two-three, depending on the size, the age, the sex of the animal. So if we have um, a big old bull with a really hard head, we're probably going to use the 223. Um, other than that, it's usually the 22 Magnum with a full metal jacket. You can also get lead free rounds if that's important to you. We harvest the brain, so we usually go that route. Um, so that's basic. Um, from there, you need to stick the animal, of course, to cut its arterial, uh, its arteries. Uh, we do the arteries in the heart instead of in the neck. Um, and we had a custom made sticking knife done for us because we had a heck of a time finding good sticking knives. Um, you can find some that are called sticking knives and they're just awful. You want a really sharp knife, especially for cattle. Um, that is a heavy, heavy hide to get through and you want to be as quick and as humane as possible. So you need a good sticking knife. And um, we just found a guy that made knives and um, told him, you know, kind of what we wanted and how hard the steel had to be. And that knife is very protected now. It's It comes out for nothing but for cutting those arteries. And it's sharp as all get out. So I think those things are very essential. Um, and then, so once the animal is dead, so you have a choice there. Uh, you can um, either start... Um, you know, field, split it and um, cut it and gut it in the field. Um, or you can get it over to wherever your workspace is going to be. Um, I assume seeing you've been raising these animals for 10 years, you have a tractor. Um, we use uh, a tractor. So wherever the animal is shot and we bring the animal into a pasture and then we let it walk around and we give it some alfalfa and it's nice and calm and that's when we shoot it. Um, and so that's usually somewhere around the barns. And um, we have chains that we had some hooks welded onto uh, and we just put the chains on the front of our tractor and we hook the, um, the rear tendon the Achilles tendon we hook the chain through that and then we're able to just incrementally lift up the animal 
um, as we're uh, taking its hide off. So as we're skinning it, um, this we find is just the cleanest way to do it. It works the best for us. We've done it different ways, but this is the way I was taught to do it. And I tried a couple different ways because other people told me it would be easier and we just didn't find that to be. So we're basically using our tractor bucket as a hoist with these chains that are in the slip through those rear tendons on the rear legs, the Achilles tendons. Um, so yeah, some way to lift it up if you don't have a, I know you, I'm sure you have a tractor. If you don't though, um, you don't, you could always skin it so that the, the hide is staying on the ground under the animal. Um, that's one way to do it, but then you're still in a position where you have to get it over to where it's going to be hanging, wherever that's going to be. So, um, Okay, so we're still on the basics here. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to remember. So when at our first farm, um, we butchered beef the very first year we were there and we didn't have a tractor yet. And we were, I remember we were on top of a hill and there was a sleet storm. It was just miserable. And um, it was pitch black and we were using our little um Toyota Matrix with its um, bright lights on aimed at us because it was pitch black outside. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. Um, and I had a little, my my dog Tenga, who's a Newfie, he was just a puppy at the time. And I was grabbing hide and, and cutting it away from the flesh. And I thought I had hide, but I had his little puppy ear. I still feel guilty about that to this day. And I cut his ear. Anyway, he survived. Um, he was a tough little guy. But anyway, that was before we had tractors. So it is doable. It is tough. I wouldn't want to do it when there's flies around. That is for sure. But you can basically wedge the animal so the legs are up. And then you're cutting away the hide, but leaving it open on the ground. So it's almost forming like a little sanitary blanket. And then you're gutting and um, taking off the head and um, you're going to break up the animal into quarters and then you have to physically move it from there. So it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's like field dressing a steer. Uh, it's a lot of animal, but it, it can be done. We did it. Um, then, uh, but anyway, so we'll go back to the tractor. Um, and so you're incrementally lifting the animal as you're cutting, skinning it. So that goes to the next pieces of equipment, which are, are good skinning knives. And um, you can use uh, any sort of like Victorinox or um, Dick uh, German knives they they make decent skinning knives I mean and they're not expensive at all they're like maybe 20 bucks or you can go and get you know some carbon steel we have two bench made skinning knives so we have used the Victorinox and Dick ones which are more like a commercial skinning knife uh, you need a good sharpener with you while you're doing it because you're constantly sharpening those like uh, it's it's a lot of sharpening because they're they're stainless so they'll take they'll take an edge but they won't keep an edge very long especially when you're doing a hide so um 
we found like a, a few years ago, we just invested in Benchmade ones. They still need some sharpening as you're going. And if you don't know how to sharpen knives, I highly recommend you take a course. Uh, you could probably even watch something on YouTube. I'm not sure. I took a course years ago and it paid for itself in the first week. I um, There's nothing more miserable than a dull knife when you're butchering meat. It's just, it's something nightmares are made of. So um, I would say if you can get, if you can afford to get carbon steel, you won't, you'll still sharpen it. You just won't be doing it as much. So that would be my, another tip. Um, we have two coolers that are sitting there um, as we're butchering and one of the coolers will be like they both have cool ice in them and one of them I'll just literally be throwing in organs as we go so we keep the spleen we keep the lungs we keep the liver we keep the kidneys um, thymus if there is one which there usually isn't because we're doing older animals uh, we keep eyeballs uh, tail, obviously, which isn't an organ, um, tongue, the cheeks. So all of that is going into my coolers. Um, and then in my other cooler is where my extra fat is going. So the call fat, the C-A-U-L fat, which is like this beautiful web around all of the, um, guts, uh, that all gets taken off and put in there. Um, sometimes I'll put the suet, which is the fat around the kidneys in there. Sometimes I'll leave it until it gets a little hard in the cooler because then I can just peel it off really easily. Um, yeah, so I think that's about it for that part for the coolers. Um, and then, you know, we're bringing it into a cooler, uh, once. So now we've got, no, we're not in the cooler yet. Wrong. I got that wrong. We have an animal now, so its hide is off. We've cut its head off. The guts are out. And um, what we need to do now is split it. So here's where there's another. When we started, we just had a meat saw, bone saw. Um, specifically, there's one. We have um, two of them. We have one that's smaller. That's great for sheep and pigs. And then we have a bigger one that's meant for cattle. Um, uh, you always want to have spare blades on hand and that you can get from like a commercial butcher shop. And yes, it takes a lot of muscle and God bless my husband's muscles for that because, whoa, that's a workout. But we also have, um, you can get, um, meat or sorry, a bone blade for a reciprocating saw. So we've gone that route now. But we still will often, he'll start sawing with that and, you know, it's easier to get off track instead of being straight down the spine and sometimes he'll, uh, he'll have to get his manual saw out as well. So now we've got the animal, it's split in half and it's ready to be hung. So from there, um, back in the day, we would always butcher in the fall when it was cold um, and that we could watch the temperature and see, you know, for the next week or however far one can predict the weather, which isn't, doesn't seem to be all that accurate. We would hang it from our barn and we would use pulleys, just old fashioned pulleys <laughs> and rope, and we would quarter it, 
Uh, so four pieces that we would just pull up in the barn and that way the coyotes and the raccoons and stuff couldn't get it. And that's how we hung it. And according to my mailman, when he was a little boy, they used to take the meat and hang it in their barn and they'd lower it and saw some off or cut some off. It would be frozen solid in the middle of winter. And that would be whatever they cut off. That would be what was for supper. So there was no freezers. So the freezer was the outdoors and that's just how they ate it. So now we have, um, of course, a walk-in cooler. And so we bring the meat into the walk-in cooler and we usually hang it for two to three weeks. Um, we've been hanging it for three weeks, 21 days consistently, but, um, we actually last year did an experiment. We've also tried hanging it for four or five weeks and we were not happy with that. Um, and last year we did an experiment where we, um, hung it for two weeks and we actually like that quite a bit better. So we're going to try shorter hanging periods again this year and see how that goes. I seem to have, um, sometimes if it hangs too long, I can have a bit of a histamine response to it. And I didn't have that at all with the uh, meat that wasn't hung for nearly as long. So, um, so I think that's, that's about where we're at after it's hung. Um, of course you need good butchering knives. And again, this is, um, you know, um, based on preference, but you can get the Victorinox and the um, Dick knives are nice. And I like the semi-flexible, about a five and a half inch semi-flexible is what I like to cut meat up with. I just find that I can get, you know, I can trim the fat quite nicely. Uh, and then we have some bigger ones for breaking. And then we have a really good cleaver which is also important, but I also have some nice Japanese boning knives that are, are really nice, but you have to be a little bit more careful with them. They can get chips in them if you're a little too aggressive with them. And because they are pricier, uh, I just use them for certain things when I know that I'm not, uh, when I'm not dealing with bone as much. All right, I think that might be, uh, and then of course, paper, um, paper tape. And um, yeah, I think that, I think I covered everything. If there's something I didn't let me know, Kendra, but I think, I think that's it. As far as the, you know, when you are butchering, I guess I should mention, we just did everything with a bone saw for the first many years. And I mean everything and everything we eat has bone in it. So we didn't bone anything out. We cut through the bone with saws, <laughs> knives and saws. And that is a huge task, whether it was pigs or goats or sheep or cattle we used saws and knives so absolutely doable you don't ever want to saw through flesh you just cut through it with a knife and when you get to the bone you pull out the saw it's a lot of work but um it's it's worth it now we've um we had our eyes peeled for many years for used equipment we have a an electric bone saw which is just sweet glory and we have our ground beef, our grinder, some World War II monstrosity that just 
goes and goes, which is awesome. And um, we're very appreciative of both of them very much. But we did it without for a long, long time. So, um, you know, it's definitely worth just putting it out to the universe that these are things that you want and keeping an eye open for them because we didn't think we, we couldn't pay the $12,000 for the electric meat saw, the one that we wanted because there's a lot of cheap ones out there. But anyway, uh, and then literally the same brand of the one that we wanted is the one we got used and we got that and the huge commercial meat grinder uh, for a thousand dollars, the two of them, or maybe twelve hundred dollars. Anyway, it was just, eh, it'll come, it'll come. Just gotta have put that out that to the universe that you want it. Anyway, um, that will be that for that one. Okay, Folliday says purchased purchased a parcel of depleted land in sandy, sandy, sandy soil on a bay, and need to regenerate stat. Help. Well. I have some sad news. There's no such thing as regenerate stat. It's regenerate for a lifetime, I'm afraid. It takes it takes many years and it's a ongoing, evolving process. Um, I know nothing about sandy, sandy, sandy soil. I, I'm sorry, but definitely, and I mentioned this before, was the uh, Acres USA and they have tons of farming uh, information and a lot of stuff on regenerative practices um, that will probably be really helpful to you. There's a couple other books. I can't remember the title, but I'm going to put a little note to myself here. Um, Mark Shepard has some great books on regenerating farm land. I don't know specifically for Sandy, but I'm sure he covers all the topics. But anyway, I'll put some links in there for you, Holiday, and hopefully, uh, hopefully there's something good for you in there. Okay, Jenny says, in the absence of an in-person mentor, do you have suggestions for where to learn how to truly start to use all parts of a cow, what to do with the hide? Seems the cheap mail-off tanning options are only laden with chemicals, how to clean and use the feet. Um, A piece of this got cut off. Um, Okay, how to make use of the miles and miles of tripe. Do you just not worry too much about it and put most of that into a pile to freeze for feed or other species? Or does most just go back to the wildlife? Are you personally consuming things other than the basic offal of liver, heart, tongue, tail? Thank you, Tara. So we consume the liver, heart, tongue, tail, yes. Also the kidney, the spleen, the lungs, the brain, the eyes. We've also cleaned intestines before for sausage and that's absolutely doable and that's how everyone got their sausage casings and many still do. Now we just put it in sea cans and ship it off to China so they can ship us back our intestines to make sausages with because no one here wants to do it anymore. Um, as far as the hides, um, you know, I've, I've gone partway with hides before and it's just never been a thing that I've set the time aside to do. There are definitely courses online and I'll put a little note here because I know a woman that does courses for tanning hides that I'll put a link to as well um but 
you know, when you are raising all your own food, um, some things have to give and, and I just don't have time for that right now. But, um, as far as like the tripe and the hooves I've kept, uh, there was one time we had a calves hooves and I, I kept those. Um, it's not often we have calves hooves and, and, uh, and I'm glad for that. So I do not keep the, the hooves. Uh, I just not something that's attractive to me, but my dogs, it's very attractive to them. They get them. Um, and then as we also keep, um, like I said, by the time I'm done with the head, we, I, I take out the cheeks, the tongue, um, the eyes, so, and the brain. So there's really, there's not much left there. Um, and then the, for the rest of the animal, there's, once we've, um, butchered the animal, which I explained sort of in detail earlier in these Q and A's, uh, it's my job to sit there, <laughs> um, with this huge pile of guts and the four chambers of their digestive system. And I, cut each open and I take slabs of the different types of tripes each there's four different um, types and um, I cut those up into pieces and those go into baggies I take the digested semi-digested and quite digested grasses and bacteria out of their different stomach chambers and I put them into baggies um I don't keep intestines unless I was making some sort of sausage casing. Um, and um, yeah, that's, there's, you know, things like the esophagus, the trachea, all those things can be kept and used for, used in bone broths. And then of course we keep all of the bones, all of the joints, not just the soup ones. So, um, and then, so what's left over, um, the hide with, um, some of the gut pile, the intestines, um, and then, you know, whatever's left along, along the, um, uh, the bottom of the legs, just the hooves, basically, which is what my dogs get. And yes, that goes to the wildlife. Um, and I think that, I think we have to also remember, I think lots of times people ask me like, uh, you know, they, they think that if we don't use it all, that it's wasted somehow. And I, I've never really had that feeling or think that concept is accurate at all it doesn't have to be us that uses it it comes back to us in different ways and so I love leaving gut piles and giving those things to the wilds um I think it's important I think it's part of the reciprocity of our relationship with the wild um just that's the way it's been since the dawn of time people didn't use every last thing um there is always some parts of the animals that were left for other animals. And I think that's important too. So I never feel like anything's wasted. You know, when I think things are wasted is when they're not given back to nature. And when they go into big vats um, and they're rendered down with chemicals so that they can be made into whatever manufacturers need for them. That I, I think that's that's too bad, but... 
anyway, that's what we do with our stuff. Um, so TC says, uh, I'm just trying to get to the question is about grass and forage for your cows and other grazing animals. And did you cultivate it to get the best or did you sow extra seeds? Anything related to that? Um, so we, I think I mentioned in part one that we do add seed every year or two, and that's just frost seeding. So we're not digging up any soil. That's just surface seeding. The other things we do are rotational grazing. So the cattle go on and they eat and then they come off and they don't see that patch of grass again for another four to six weeks, depending where we are in the season. Um, um, what else? Well, in the winter, we'll do bale grazing. So there's always carbon going back onto the the uh, soil. So whether that's through hay that's unrolled there and then the cows go in and eat it and trample it and poop on it and add all those nutrients back into the soil. Um, also, we uh, have our cattle in the wintertime in a winter area that we then, it's outside, but there's a three-sided shelter that's there for them as well. And then that three-sided shelter is constantly getting shavings and old hay laid down in it. And then they're lying in there and pooping and lying in there and pooping. And so it, you know, it, it builds and builds. And then in the spring, we take that out. It goes into big windrows for compost. And then the next year we have a manure spreader and that will get all put all over the place as well and um yeah if if I think that if we were careful about what we're what how we're grazing and making sure that some of those legumes that flower things like alfalfa and trefoil and um clovers medics as you know one when they flower um and are able to spread their seed we don't have to be seeding all the time but we have a very diverse pasture here and um we have all sorts of grasses and legumes and i that was one thing that was interesting to me in virginia when we went and we're driving down that way is it's just all grass like one like fescue just one type it's a monocrop really and that was interesting to me because I don't really see that here. Um, I mean, I'm sure it exists where people have cultivated their land and just put on one species. But for us, it's absolutely essential that we have a very, very wide uh, diversity of species in our animals' diets. That's what brings health. Uh, that's what makes animals healthy are these different nutrients from different places and that's why we really like silvopasture as well which is just employing our forest and where we are we have to do that we had to do that because we just don't have enough pasture um, to carry our animals throughout the summer um, and so we have to learn about that and I'm I'm really grateful for that because I think probably like when we were first here this is at our second farm I'm talking about because our first farm had tons of pasture but here um it you know we were looking to rent some pasture and um we were 
you know, trying to think of different ways, maybe leasing some pasture and we weren't able to do that. And I'm so grateful for that now because it forced us to learn more about um, farming the forest. And there's some great books out there on that. You can just look up Silvo Pasture and there's some great books on Amazon or wherever you want to get your books. Um, but that really, I think, is one of the key reasons that our, I just find our beef is so delicious. It's just really interesting, the flavor of it. It's very different. And I think some people that aren't used to wild game um, or think, people that say that meat can taste gamey uh to me that's called flavor um you know corn fed beef has no flavor and people are just used to that and so instead of saying corny for <laughs> bland gross meat we just call meat that has flavor gamey a little bit of a pet peeve of mine but anyways um you know the health of the animals and the flavor of their meat is vastly superior um not to mention you know i mean when when the animals are in the forest they have access to um water that we have water in the forest they have access to shade they have access to all manner of leaves and shrubs and wild plants that i mean are in the hundreds or thousands that i i don't even know what's in there a lot of times and um you know they figure it out and i think that also speaks to the one of the other questions i had in part one where um someone was a little bit worried about toxic plants like there are definitely toxic plants in our forest and we have not had any issue at all with animals getting sick from eating things so um there that's just a little another little bit of reassurance so hopefully I answered your question TC and that wasn't just a big rambling mess I hope okay so Kaylin says hey Tara this question may be in the gray area between farming and food but my husband and I are wondering how you accomplished aging beef post slaughter before you had a walk-in cooler we're discussing purchasing a grass-fed steer from our next door neighbor at the end of the year and the part we're hung up on is how we may go about hanging it we've processed every typical farm hunted animal from elk on down to quail at least once but never a cow thank you okay kale and i hope you heard my big long rambling answer at the beginning of this but i was talking about hanging it from a barn if you don't have a barn maybe a rafter an outdoor building and I'm not sure where you live um, and if it gets cold in the winter but harvesting in the fall and hanging you know you don't even have to do it for three weeks like if you could just watch the weather and do it for a week or two two would be better but you know if it gets a little bit cold that's okay it's okay it's not going to be perfect but that's all we did for years literally and never had an issue um there were a couple times where we were like holy smokes the temperature is dropping you know tomorrow it's going to be minus 15 and we didn't want the meat to freeze and so we had to rush to get it out of there but and get it into our garage but you know you just do it and and uh it's definitely a possibility okay so rebecca asks what do you put in your chicken feed i mentioned that part in part one so i won't go over that and whether i see any benefits at all to registering livestock in ontario so it depends what you mean by registering livestock if you mean um 
<clears throat> purebred animals that that you want to register because they're purebreds and maybe heritage or rare breeds then for sure um, if that's something that you feel passionate about we used to register our purebred um, red poles and highland cattle when we had them um, as far as if you mean registering livestock um, well, I'm wondering if you are meaning registering your farm and and reporting your animals. I'm not quite sure. You can maybe leave a comment just to clarify that, Rebecca. But if that is what you mean, then um, no, I sure don't. Um, I think if anything, the more we can raise our food quietly on the down low, the better it is. Um, and the better it will definitely be in the future as more and more regulations start coming down uh it's already happening in england and other parts in the world of the world uh where you know they they're not letting animals go uh birds go outside um you know where we live here in ontario i'm sure you know you can't even raise more than 50 turkeys and a few years ago the big turkey producer producers tried to get it outlawed that we were allowed to put our turkeys outside so um you know these things are going to be happening more and more as we go into this new era of globalism and so i think you know saving your own seeds and raising your food quietly is in my opinion the way to go uh, Ferry says, hey Tara, not sure if this counts, but how did you manage to financially shift from farming and producing food for sale to more producing food for yourselves and being able to live at a slower pace? P.S. Not sure if you remember, but you... Okay, so this was some an uh, extra comment here. Um, okay, so when we were raising our... When we were on our first farm and we were selling our food, um, here's the thing. I don't think that we were making uh, enough money to warrant the extreme output, output of our time and labor and our own expenses to make those things happen. Um, I remember years ago before I did a, I first got into farming, um, I did a course on farming and it was, it was excellent. It was with a young woman whose name was also Tara and she really, uh, was a plain speaking, common sense kind of gal who really, uh, got us to sit down and do these exercises where we actually valued our time and, uh, I know very, very few farmers that do that. You know, how much are you paying yourself an hour kind of business? Um, a lot of times farmers will, you know, factor in all the other costs, but their labor is just a labor of love or whatever it is. And they don't, they don't really look at how much it costs them to do something. So I've mentioned before that we did... Um, uh, when we were on our first farm that we did this holistic management course and it got us to really sit down and look at the figures on paper and, um, you know, look at how much it was costing us, not just monetarily, but in other ways to, to be doing 
things the way that we were doing them, uh, at the pace that we were doing them and how much was involved in that. I mean, everything from, you know, dealing with customers, uh, to, uh, bringing our animals into the abattoir, which was, uh, really challenging for me because I, I really, um, it, it wasn't the way that I thought things should be done. It felt, it felt decidedly not right, uh, for me personally. And so, you know, and, and, you know, I remember one time we were, uh, breeding, um, large black pigs and, uh, we had like 11 wieners that we were selling to this other woman that I knew that had a organic farm and did things well and everything. But, you know, she came and picked up these 11 wieners and I just, I remember, you know, I, we got a fair price for them for, for the value of, of what a a piglet was worth. Um, so it's not that, but I just remember like loading them up and her trailer wasn't, um, it needed a ramp put on it anyway it was a bit of a schmazzle as these things tend to be and ended up taking longer than it should have and I remember just like when she left thinking you know that like those little piglets and this like you know whatever it was a thousand bucks fifteen hundred bucks in my hand was the culmination of um years of getting you know, a couple years finding the right sows, getting a sow that was a good mother, you know, moving the sow, getting the sow into a dry place when she had her piglets, um, having a good boar, keeping a good boar. Oh, that boar didn't work out, had to get another boar. Like just the amount of investment and there's like a thousand bucks, like 1500 bucks in my hand. It, it, it was ridiculous. And, um, we just started thinking of things more and more in that in that way and adding to the cost of the money was all those other costs and like I said we did that through holistic management that helped to clarify a lot of things for us um so actually just shifting to um raising animals here for us uh has been easy uh we don't pay anything for groceries. Uh, there's a lot of things we don't give out, but we have to pay for it to be on the farm. So, you know, when we're buying hay, because our first farm we could grow hay, but here we have to buy hay, that's carbon that we're bringing into our farm. And that's part of our grocery bill. I mean, that's just the way that we look at it. And we've always paid a lot of money for our groceries, always have, um, to have the best food that we can have. And so, you know, when I'm milking my cow and um, there's four gallons of of milk sitting there and either I'm going to make something with it or I'm going to trade it or barter it with something else, there's also monetary value there. So, um you know, it's, um, it's just a different way of looking at things, I think is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if, I don't know if that's all that helpful, but, um, when, when you're raising just food for yourself, you get pretty meticulous about what you actually need and what's too much and costing you too much. So, you know, it's, if I have 40 chickens here, 
um, and I'm getting five or six dozen eggs a day, that's, that's just too much. And so, you know, you're constantly refining and calling things back and trying to see what you actually need and trimming away the excess of what you don't. And when you trim away the excess of what you don't, you're also sort of shaping your life as well at the same time you're making decisions based on what you want you know and like an example and so we're constantly constantly doing that you know we were just talking the other day and um we were talking about different sheep breeds and stuff and I just realized like I don't want sheep I I love lamb um I love the meat but we just don't have enough pasture to be raising sheep and so we're going to do something a little different there we have a friend that can maybe sell us a few lambs in the spring but um and in all likelihood I think uh, I also know people that raise really good sheep and I'll probably just buy the meat instead of um raising it because I would rather have my grazing land for my cattle which are to me numero uno so and I get to do things with those cattle that I couldn't do if I was just raising them commercially you know like keeping the calf with the moms for our dairy cows and like only milking once a day and I get to really focus on the things that are important to me their longevity and the saturation of nutrition that they are this is the most nutritious food I can I couldn't buy this food that to me is the most important thing like I couldn't buy it because it's raised and I do things exactly like I want to do them and um, when you're selling things commercially there's accommodations to that you don't it, it maybe people that don't farm don't understand that but there's always things that you're kind of having to let go of and things that you're you have to make you know you have to be flexible on because you just can't do those special extra things that you get to do when you're just doing things for yourselves in the in the way that you want to do them and for us that's everything from like the birth of our animals to the way they die so Anyway, I, um, hopefully that's not too rambly. I think it was, but I hope there was an answer in there for you somewhere, Fairy. And thank you so much for your nice, um, comment that you put at the end of your question. It was very sweet. Makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Grace says, would love to hear more about silvopasturing. What is it exactly? Have you always done it? When looking to purchase a homestead, could forest area be suitable area for cattle rather than land with only pasture? Do you have any book recommend recommendations to learn more about silvopasturing? So I did sort of speak about it already, Grace, and I will put um, I will put those books as well so you can read more about it. It's definitely worth reading about. It really depends what your forest is like. Like if you have a monocrop of sort of pine trees, then no, it wouldn't work. Um, and so there's there's a lot to it and I think that if it's something you're seriously thinking about definitely get these books we got them and they're a treasure so I'll definitely put that, that link in there as well okay so Tara says what are your feelings on dwarf goats versus full-sized it seems to me full-size makes more sense for the yield but are their personalities just really rough to deal with? I super appreciate your advice to start with rabbits because of their gentleness, but we now want to raise ruminants and I'm not sure where to start. 
and Brittany had a great comment there underneath um, Tara's comment. Um, so we raise goats on our first farm and I love goat meat. Oh, I love it. And I had a pretty good source of it for a while, but I don't anymore. So maybe we'll bring some goats back so I can eat goat again. Um, I, I do like full size goats. Um, I, I tend not to like dwarf anything, but more than that, my suggestion would be is to look at where those animals came from. You know, like if it's a Nubian goat, are they going to be okay in your environment? Um, I would look more for the, the heritage genetics of any animal and make decisions based around that. Um, as much as you would anything else and uh, you know with their personalities and everything we found um, uh, goats really challenging um, at our first farm because of the way that we had our setup and uh, they can be challenging they are characters and they're they're quite joyful to have around as well but they can um if you have patience, then then goats would be a good place to start. But I think everybody, you know, just starting off with ruminants, yeah, I'd say get a couple goats. Why not? Have fun. See how it goes. Report back. I'd love to hear about it. But I, for me, I, I'm not a dwarf person on any type of animal, so I, I like, the, I like uh, the bigger frame too. But like I said, I would go with breed and origin of the breed over other things. Okay, so Lydia says, I have a question about harvesting ducks. I remember you talking about dry aging them as they are for three days, but how to proceed then? Removing feathers from chickens is so easy using hot water, but it doesn't work for us at all when trying to remove the feathers of our ducks. Thank you so much for all the inspiration you are bringing to my life, Tara. Thank you, Lydia. Um, yeah, duck plucking is no joke. It is a task. So what Lydia is referring to for anyone that doesn't know is that um, sometimes we'll just age our ducks as is. So we'll kill them and leave them with their feathers and hang them from their heads in our meat cooler. Uh, this is the way they traditionally flavored the meat of the ducks and hanging them like that can help loosen the feathers you can hang them like that for up to three days so they're not gutted nothing's happened they're just dead and hanging from their heads in a cooler um, after that time you can either do a scald like you do with your chickens or you can just do dry plucking so I think um, and then alternatively if um, you know depending what the sequence of our butchering days are like for the geese and ducks we might just um, kill them and then scald them and then pluck them and then gut them and, and do everything as one would with a chicken. <clears throat> so the problem with ducks and geese is that they have pin feathers and it can be a miserable plucking process. And that's why so many people skin them. But I can't think of anything more heartbreaking than skinning ducks and geese um, with all of that absolutely gorgeous fat on them. I mean, quite literally, that's why I raise them. <laughs> uh, their meat's great. I love their meat, but it's that fat that when you cook them, that rendered off fat that I 
use in so much of my other cooking and um, I use it to top off my pâtés. I use it in my roulette. Um, it's just such precious fat. So I would never skim them even though it can just be nightmarish to pluck them. So they say there's three times uh, that are the best ages to process ducks and that's at seven weeks. I think it's 12 and a half weeks and then 18 or 19 weeks of age. And in between those windows of time, you're going to get pin feather orama. Um, and then ducks, uh, it's like 9, 9 and 29, 9, 15 and 20 or something. Um, and then it, so it, apparently if you can get in at those times, the plucking goes a lot smoother. Um, having said that, I have found that that seems to me to be applicable to the more commercialized breeds. And with our heritage breeds that we raise, we seem to have a lot more variability. So even in like one hatch, um, because we have different types of heritage birds, we might have, let's say we're butchering like 20 um, ducks that are all from you know, hatches that happened within a day or two of each other. And we might have some birds that are just unbelievably full of pin feathers and others that aren't quite matured or maybe moved past that stage. So I, I understand that. Um, what I will say is that what we do is, um, we brine our, our turkeys and our geese and um, sometimes we brine our ducks as well not all the time but sometimes but what we'll do is we'll pluck them as good as we can and you have to give I have found I've had I have to give myself about double the time with ducks that I give myself for chickens chickens turkeys easy 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 so easy to pluck them it's just it's kind of nice to do those after you've done ducks and geese because you just want to cry with how easy it is to do them after the torture of the ducks and geese. But um, uh, we'll pluck them as well as we can. Um, people, There's people that use duck wax. You can look that up if it's interesting to you. It's a specific type of wax. It's, it's a lot harder than the paraffin wax. Um, I'm a little bit iffy about that stuff. Uh, but when we take the, when we thaw out the birds and I bring them in to cook them, I always give myself another half hour or so to pick over them before I cook them. So something happens when they're frozen and then they thaw and it's a lot easier to get all those little tiny feathers maybe that have hung on that seemed hopeless, um, before you froze it. If you brine them, it's even easier, but that's sort of how I deal with it. So, um, you know, we have raised pecans before and they are quite a bit easier. If you catch them at that right time, it's, it's pretty darn easy to pluck them. I had some really nice looking carcasses from them, but then when you start getting into the dark feathered birds, and the dual purpose birds it can be a little bit more challenging so 
anyway, hopefully that helps a little bit. I know it can be pretty frustrating, but um, it's worth it. It's so worth it to to hang on to that luscious, beautiful fat uh, through the skin. So Michelle asks, do you feed or supplement your sheep with anything beyond hay? Um, so they get hay, winter, grass, summer. They get uh, one scoop of organic alfalfa to get them to come into the barn at night so the coyotes don't come and eat them. And that one scoop is for um, six of them. So, um, you know, maybe it's two mouthfuls each. And that's it. And then for, uh, aside from that, they get a sheep mineral mix, a sheep chelated mineral, and they get kelp meal, and they get some humates and a little bit of Redmond salt. And that's it. Um, so Nicole asks, what's your milking routine from bringing her to the milking area, cleaning routine of the udder, products before or after? Well, milking, do your milk cows just stand there or do you give them food during and if so, what? Have you had mastitis, ketosis, or milk fever and how did you treat them? Once done milking, what's your next steps on handling the milk? And then Melissa seconded it and Kendra thirded it. Um, okay, let's see. So what is your milking routine from bringing her to the milking area? We ring a bell, ding, 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 that's on the side of the barn and... She comes a running because she wants some alfalfa. Uh, how do we clean her udder with um, black soap, which is a castile soap and water, very, very dilute, and just a cloth. Uh, products before or after, absolutely nothing. Um, while milking, do your milk cow do your milk cows just stand there, or do you give them food during? And if so, what they get. A sc- <clears throat> on average, I mean, if I have a bigger milk cow, I do have one big jersey, so she might get two scoops, but everyone else gets a scoop and a half of organic alfalfa. And here's a little trick for you. Um, if there's like, you know, apples in the fall or whatever, we'll put cut some up and put those in there too, because they love apples. But here's a little trick. We, you, we put it in their bucket and then we put about three bigger sized rocks in the bucket. And that just slows them down dramatically when they're eating. So instead of just burying their nose in it and going crazy, they have to kind of pick around the rocks and move, use their nose to move the rocks. So it slows them right down. And that way um, they don't get too impatient when they're finished eating and, and we haven't uh, finished milking. Um, have we had mastitis? Um, mastitis. Yes, we had mastitis on our first farm with, uh, Jersey, who literally, she was my first cow. Her name is Clementine. Rest in peace, Clementine, who literally did everything, um, horribly that a dairy cow can do she kicked she crapped she peed then she'd crap again then she'd pee again she'd kick again she shifted she was impatient she was ornery she was the most stubborn cow I'd ever known um and at that time she was my first milk cow and I thought this is what milking a cow is this is where's all those 
beautiful angelic pictures with bluebirds flying around the milkmaiden's head, uh, dropping daisies down into her hair. No, that was not Clementine. Clementine was there as my teacher, and she had everything, including mastitis, uh, which we treated naturally. And um, I remember doing clay packs on her udder and really focusing on milking out that area. We had her on homeopathics. Um, That was a long time ago, but it it went away. Ketosis, no, never had that in anyone, any of my cattle, Um, but they don't get grain or anything. So, Um, and then milk fever. Yes, we did have, um, we were bringing in a breed of cattle called Canadian. Uh, which are a heritage Canadian, that's just Canada and French, um, Canadien, uh, cattle, and uh, her name is Anya, and really lovely. We got her, and she was already bred from a good friend of ours who's a biodynamic farmer, and uh, she got milk fever, and we had to call the vet, and the vet did his vet thing with the calcium, and uh, we sold her after that. Um, to another friend of ours who, um, she actually had another calf after that. And we, we kept her for that second calf and she didn't get milk fever the second time, but she was really well mineralized. And I think maybe she was just a little off in her minerals, uh, judging by some of the, uh, rings in her horns and just some other things that had been going on with her body condition. So, um, we don't tend to keep, uh, I, I'm very, um, specific about what I want to breed and like the kinds of animals I want on my farm. So I will not, I will call an animal, um, rather than, rather than having to deal with an ongoing issue from a sick animal. Uh, that's, I have a hard line about that, but Um, so once done milking, what's your next steps on handling the milk? So once we're done milking, the cow goes off with her calf into the pasture and we bring the milk inside and filter it just through a paper stainless steel filter. And then it goes into a cooler in our walk-in cooler with, um, ice cold water in it. Or if, um... If the walk-in cooler is not on, then we take water out of our well that's like ice cold and we have it in like a small metal trough or pails and then the water will go from the glass jar, which is already pre-chilled, and go into there. Um, It's just really important to get it super cold as quick as possible. So putting it into the fridge will be fine as well, but it's only going to last for a few days rather than lasting for a substantial enough amount of time. Um, there you go. That's, that's all they get is organic alfalfa. And like I said, a scoop and a half, um, is good. And then, you know, when the goodies start coming later on in the summer and fall, they'll just get some of those goodies. So Stephanie says, my husband and I just purchased a home with some land in Eastern Oklahoma. We want to start a homestead, but are worried about the best way to protect ourselves and our future animals from predators There are wild hogs, bears, and mountain lions in the area. We also have a very adventurous four-year-old. 
I would really appreciate any advice to soothe my worried mama heart. Thank you so much. Uh, well, first, congratulations on buying land. That's incredibly exciting. Um, you know, there's going to be predators everywhere. We have bears. We have coyotes. Uh, heck of a lot of coyotes. We have these wonderful coyote hybrids called koi wolves, which are a combo of coyote and wolves. Those ones are fun. We have raccoons and weasels, which are just devilish little things. We have fishers, which happily eat everything in their path. Um, so yeah, we, we have them too. And it's just, you know, it'll just, it's just a part of life. You're gonna, by and large, you're, you're not going to see, I mean, we've been here for, um, over six years and at our first farm there was bears as well I I have seen one bear running away the whole time we've lived here and you know we have people that live um just down the road from us who hunt bear and he has his bear cam out all the time and you know he's seeing just tons of bear so by and large predators are pretty shy every now and then you might get one that is a little bit brazen and pushes their luck and you'll deal with that when you have to deal with that you know we we really want to live as part of this ecosystem we don't want to dominate this ecosystem and so you know there's a deal that we have this reciprocity with the wild creatures around us um but you know I'm just thinking back like we had this huge coyote actually it might have been a koi wolf I don't know but this was about three years ago and it just started coming um and picking off animals in the middle of the day which was really not common behavior for these types of animals and um it just kept you know despite what we tried it just kept getting worse and worse and you know we ended up having to shoot it and then we haven't had any issues since, but we will again at some point. And, um, you know, they'll, it's just, it's just something that you learn to deal with. And, and I think that once you're there and once you're living there, you'll see that it, it's a real rarity to have issues and, um, you do what you have to do around your farm to keep your animals safe. So for us, that means, Um, locking everything up at night that's you know if I had things out at night they would be dead period so we lock things up we train our animals to come in at night so we don't have to chase anything around we just open up doors and in they go and you know we don't if we have a cow that has a calf um, and they're by that time out in the forest then we either bring that cow and calf up or um we just, depending on who the mother is and how resilient they are, then we just trust that she's going to have what it takes. I, I'm just thinking specifically, we have this great older mature cow, Leah, and she had her calf in the forest a few years ago and I couldn't find it. She had it tucked away quite safely. And, um, you know, at that time of the year, there's a lot of abundance. There's a lot of forest creatures for the coyotes and the other creatures to eat. So, you know, it, it, you kind of, it, it doesn't make all that much sense for them to have to go and fight off, a 
a, a mother cow when there's so much easy pickings going around and stuff. So, you know, it's just a rhythm. You're going to, you're going to fall into that rhythm and you're going to see that, that, that these things that maybe are foreign to you, so seem a little bit more scary, um, will become less foreign and, and you'll, you'll figure out things and and you'll just be smart about it I mean I'm sure you're not going to send your four-year-old little boy out at night with a t-bone wrapped around his neck or anything so you're gonna be good soothe that mama heart and congratulations on your land Stephanie okay Elise says vegetation question for you Tara always appreciate your thoughts on seasonality and in general the way you approach topics from a philosophy which I believe is grounded in the wisdom for our creator I live in Florida, and one of the common refrains I hear from Floridians and non-Floridians alike is that, quote, nothing grows well here. Most people think of Florida citrus, but with the introduction of greening, very few trees last more than a few years before producing inedible fruit or dying. Some local citrus growers have told us they must spray their crops. What would you do in a case where an invasive species is making it difficult to grow a a crop truly organic? Would you forego growing that crop or build up your natural defenses with soil health? Some research has been done by, excuse me, some local universities to introduce a small kind of wasp that's supposed to kill the greening, but I worry about introducing yet another species which is not naturally in this environment. Thank you for your time and thoughts. Um, You know, I have so little time for people that make these blanket statements like the one you said, nothing grows well here. I mean... That that's just simply can't be true. So I think the first thing, if I was in your situation, I'd be looking for the farmers that are growing things there. And I would see maybe the small farmers and talk to them and see how they were able to grow things where they're growing them, because surely there's some smaller farmers that are able to do that. You know, I'm thinking... Here um, in our fruit growing region of Ontario is way down in the southern tip and it's it's called Niagara sort of it's you know that Niagara Falls I think most people know we share Niagara Falls with the US but down in that area is our, our fruit growing region and by and large that region um the growers there are using biosolids which is just sewage sludge um, from sewage uh, processing plants, human feces full of all sorts of vile contaminants, pharmaceuticals, uh, industrial waste, um, putting that on their soils. Uh, they're using pesticides and herbicides and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, this is what, this is what we're feeding our soil. And then, and then you hear things like, well, it doesn't grow here unless you spray it or, well, we have to do this or it just doesn't grow. And I, I, I just have so little patience for that line of logic. Um, there are things that are growing there. And so let's find the people that are growing them and ask a lot of questions about how they're growing them. Um, you know, our, so, you know, back to this Niagara is, um, where we get, I, I've mentioned a few times that I've started a organic fruit buying club, uh, about 15 years ago now. Um, and we bring in bulk fruit from these farmers that are growing fruit in a different way. They're not using biosolids. They're using minerals in their soil. They're, you know, they're growing fruit organically, um, 
without all these pesticides and herbicides. And so how are they doing that? Well, they, they're growing the right varieties for where they are. So that's one of the big things is what varieties um, are people growing and are they native to that area? I mean, I think that's just a common sense place to start. You know, there's uh, people want to grow all sorts of things just because maybe the temperature, they think that they should be able to grow there, but maybe, maybe putting some more thought into what was growing there uh, originally before we started cultivating everything. Um, So if I had, to your question, if I had, if I was trying to grow something and um, there was an invasive species and I couldn't grow it organically, would I keep growing it? Well, um, I have had a heck of a problem growing different varieties of winter squash here. Um, Winter squash is a big part of our our diets in the winter um, because potatoes cause me issues so um, I I really need to have my winter squash and I could grow butternut of course because butternut seems to be able to evade the squash borer and I've tried all sorts of things but the squash borer keeps finding you know even putting growing my plants under cover it keeps finding it so so what do I do do I spray the plants no that's not even an option so you know I've been trying different types of um, squash I've been trying different seeds I've been you know talking to friends who had success growing what is my favorite winter squash um and um you know which is sweet meat by the way um and I even had a friend send me some of her seeds but she lives in a very different climate than me and it was just a disaster but I'm continuing and I'm looking at the soil I'm seeing you know what it's it's an ongoing thing for sure and it it takes a lot of consideration and a lot of time and a lot of patience because the easy thing to do are, um, you know, but there is something in the soil that is missing that is making this plant susceptible to this bug. And that is the riddle for me to figure out. And in order to do that, um, I have to keep trying different things and talk to people that have had success. Unfortunately, most of the people around me just said, Oh, I could never grow that. So I just stuck with butternut. Um, And I don't want to do that. But I think we have to just really be curious. Don't listen to the people. I think there's going to be a couple more questions in the next part that I answer where people have made these carte blanche statements about, you know, oh, you have to do this or you can't do that. And oh boy, I just have no tolerance for those types of things. I've everything that anyone has ever told me about farming like you can't do that no you can't keep a calf with its mother no you have to feed a cow grain like all these things that people said so certainly um, I have found to not be true and so it's okay like it may be true in their world it may be true for them it may be true on their farm but I don't like that answer so it's not true for me and I'm going to figure out a different way to do it I think that's the way to approach these things. Um, I, you know, is our hope in some sort of introduced wasp? No, of course not. I mean, that's, we, we keep going further and further down this skewed path, thinking that these technologies are going to save us. And what we should be doing is looking back at where we came from and how things used to be done.
That's what I think anyway. Okay, I think this is a good place to stop part two. I thought we could get everything in part two, but nope, not going to happen. So there's going to be a part three. Holy moly, these are a lot of questions. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. And I will put those resources in that I mentioned. I think there was only a couple of them, but a couple books. All right, bye-bye.